Will you turn to 1 Corinthians, please? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I usually use the New King James Version, but I was given a gift of the New American Standard Bible. So I thought, well, I've never read it through, so I will do this year. So I'm going to read from the New American Standard, and I hope hope it will be more or less the same as what you're reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 17. And going into the beginning of chapter 2. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ should should not be made void. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. And the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So let's just pray, shall we, again. Father, we come now to your sacred word, and yet beyond it, we want to see the Lord Jesus. Speak to us, teach us, instruct us, enthuse us, give us a new vision. Not only of the Lord Jesus crucified and risen, but of the need to get this glorious truth out to men and women. For we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever come across the writings of a man called Orlando Figes. I don't know how you pronounce his surname. F-I-G-E-S. He's written three books about Russia. And I have to, they're great long volumes, but they're a great read. And I recommend them if you want some secular historical reading. It was recorded, and it's in, I think it's called The People's Tragedy by him. It was recorded that the same night that the Bolsheviks were plotting the Russian Revolution, the Tsar recorded in his diary how he was spending his time. I'm quoting. Spent all my free time reading a French book about Caesar's conquest of Gaul. Visited a monastery and kissed the icon. I wrote to Alexis, went for a drive and a walk and in the evening played dominoes. That's what the Tsar was doing and the clergy 
leading Orthodox clergy at the very moment that the Bolsheviks were ready to, as it were, be the catalyst for that dreadful revolution, they were discussing and debating in conference the latest style of vestments to wear in official appearances. Now, I just think this is all very far removed, obviously, from the call of Christ to us, but I think it's all very indicative of the society in which we, we are living in. We're going to talk quite a bit, especially on Wednesday, about uh, the change in tone in the country in which we're living in and how that's impacting us. And I think two very practical sessions are set aside for that. And yet it seems as though here we are, you know, Titanic sinking, as it were, and yet we're rearranging the deck chairs to change the metaphor and the, the quotation. We are recognising that things are desperate spiritually in our land, economically. Well, let them debate that. But spiritually, we're in a terrible situation. And yet here we are, we discuss whether there should be women bishops, women priests, what's our attitude towards this, that and the other. And the vital truths, which are so important for every individual, I don't know, they just seem far from the agenda of most people's conversation. And here we are as evangelists, and I think we're really privileged to be called to this sort of work. I think uh, we love being together, and we, I think we feel grateful to God that he's set us aside to make the gospel known. But... I am convinced from my own experience and indeed from talking to others that there is a temptation for us to, as it were, become professional in our work. Professional in a sort of, I don't know, this is what we do type thing. And we lose the sense of urgency and the seriousness of our message. A few days ago I was, I was in Holland and I was going to get the ferry back and I had the afternoon to myself and I spent the time, I was, I, was, I was actually on my bike and I was praying and I was praying very specifically that, Lord, it seems a very long time since just through one-to-one -one conversations, not, not preaching where people come up and talk to you afterwards, but in one-to-one -one conversations and sort of things, you know, you get into when you're in a shop, etc. Lord, it seems a long time since I had a really, really good conversation. Now, why is that? And there may have been reasons to do with my own heart. There may have been reasons to do with just ticking over, Roger. You're doing what you do. I try to talk to people as I go through daily course of life. And yet you're forgetting the importance of the message that you're desperately wanting to share to these, these people. It can happen to us as evangelists that we become routine. We get our pattern, we get our phrases, we get our terminology, we, we know when we get up, we know when we're supposed to go out. If we can cut it short, sometimes we do because we become professional. And I'm going to make a plea, and in many ways it's a very simple one. Some of you might accuse me at the end of teaching grandma to, to suck eggs, but to make a plea for us all to be people who are passionate about the cross and proclaiming this message. When I was a teenager, we used to sing a Wycliffe Bible Translator's chorus. Every person, in every nation, in each succeeding generation, has the right to hear the news that Christ can save. And I believe that with all my heart, that every person, in every nation, in each succeeding generation, has the right to hear the news that Christ can save. I'm sure we're all aware that the, the theme of the cross is the actual 
It's the centerpiece, isn't it, of Scripture? And we've got this already from Jonathan this afternoon. It's the master theme of the Bible. In the Old Testament, the cross and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ are pictured, portrayed, prophesied all the way through. These are they which speak of me, says Jesus. He spoke about the law, the prophets and the Psalms, all speaking about him. Everywhere you go in scripture, there is Jesus. One of the books, I don't know whether it's on your bookstall, Jonathan, that I love is A.M. Hodgkin's Christ in All the Scriptures. Do you know that book? I've had two copies of it. The first one literally was a hardback, but it fell apart from overuse. And the second one's well on the way to it. Wonderful, wonderful book. Looking at how the Lord Jesus is portrayed in each of the Bible books. Matthew devotes 141 verses to the description of the cross. Matthew chapter 27, I went through once, just noting the word him, H-I-M, in that one chapter. And I think it's 35 times. It's the description of the cross, but it's an incredibly Christ-centered description. Him. He is the centre. It's what it's all about. Mark gives 116 verses. Luke, two very long, wonderful chapters. John, as we know, half of his gospel is given over to the events surrounding the cross. And in the book of Acts, everything really is about the cross. Peter stands up at Pentecost and he proclaims the gospel. And what's it all? It's the cross he's preaching. In the temple... Speaking there and under severe pressure from the leading authorities because great things are happening as the gospel is preached. They're silenced, they're told to be quiet. What does Peter do? Well, we'll look at this again, God willing, on Wednesday. He preaches the cross to these people. You have killed the prince of life, he says. The apostles, when they were arrested, Jesus whom you slew and hung on a cross... Cornelius was told about Jesus, whom God raised up. It's all about these three wonderful days where the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross and carried our sin and was buried and rose from the dead. Paul goes to Antioch and what does he speak about? The sufferings of the Lord Jesus. He goes to Thessalonica. He speaks about the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. He goes to Athens and he reasons with the people there about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, I once went through every sermon in the book of Acts and I found that every one had at least two common themes. And of course, we're only getting the the sort of sermon notes, the outline, a precy of what they're saying. Sometimes it's just a couple of verses. Well, clearly they would have been speaking much more. But every single sermon talks about the the, uh, resurrection. Well, of course, Jesus must have died before he rose and the need to repent Robert Lee great American preacher said take the cross out of our preaching whether that preaching be in a tent or a crude tabernacle or the isolated church up the creek or in the country or a big church in the city take the cross out of our preaching it's like taking the heart out of fire, sorry, the heat out of fire, the melody out of music, numbers out of mathematics. Well, of course, these days they do. It's all X equals. Anyway, and uh, facts out of history. Well, they do that as well, but that's a different matter. And the mind out of metaphysics and the words out of vocabulary. It's the heart of our Christian message. But a friend of mine went to hear a well-known preacher in Leeds some years ago now, and I wrote an article about, event, about it eventually. And I said to him, what did you think? I'll never forget the sentence, and I I entitled the article with this sentence. He said, Roger, great communicator, no gospel. Now, we are evangelists. We're people who are proclaiming this good news to men and women. 
And there is a temptation that we too can, as it were, play down what happened at the cross. And, and we do so out of the best of motives because we want to, as it were, woo people. We want to draw people, yes, to ourselves and to this message, to the Lord Jesus. Later on we can explain all the details that God laid on Jesus, the sin of the world. But do do we have to go into all of that now? And and we talk about forgiveness and joy and peace and relationship with God and heaven one day. Wonderful, wonderful truth. Nothing wrong in speaking about those things. But it's very easy to miss the core truth, the foundational truth, the heart of it all. So I want to look at... Four pointers towards um, preaching the cross and beg us to be people who are making much of Christ and him crucified, as we've just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First of all, it was absolutely central to the coming of Christ. He was born for the cross. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He came not so much to preach the gospel, but he came that there might be a gospel to preach. Christianity is Christ. Christ, of course, is Christianity. It's all about him. But to understand him, we have to understand his work. And his work took him on a path to Calvary where he would carry on himself the sin of the world. We can't just accept Jesus as a good teacher. As a moral example, you know this. We have to go beyond that to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ took our sins. We speak, yes, sometimes about the physical sufferings of the Lord Jesus, but they're not majored on, are they, in in the New Testament? By all means, if we want to talk a little bit about it, just to drive home the horror of the cross, fine. But that isn't the greatest suffering. We can talk about the emotional suffering of the Lord Jesus. That those who once forsook everything to follow him, now forsook him and fled. And yes, how much that must have hurt him. The heaviness of heart as one sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Another denied him. And the others like frightened sheep just scattered. But the significance, of course, is that he who was pure and spotless and holy carried on himself the sin of the world from the beginning to the end of time. Sin laid, focused, funneled on him. And he is made sin for us. I don't know that we can ever really enter into how abhorrent sin is for this holy God. And the Lord Jesus Christ carrying our sin on himself. It didn't contaminate him, but it was a crushing load. He took the vileness of of the world's sin and he paid for it. The one who was the, the glory, the crown of heaven, laid it all aside and came to earth to go to Calvary. The one who once listened to the songs of angels in worship and praise heard this howling mob of religious and political leaders hurling abuse at him. As he hangs there out of love for them, carrying their sin. He came to earth and he took on himself our poverty, our waywardness, our rebellion. Every last drop of sin laid on him. 
Now, I believe to explain that is crucial. I, I, I talk about, and I don't know where I got the phrase from, I'm sure it's not original, but the hidden work of Jesus. No human eye could see what was going on as Jesus took our sins and God sent this deep, tangible darkness over the face of the earth. Nobody could see the agony as he took our sins there. Suspended between heaven and earth, cursing criminals to begin with at least on either side of him, in all the humiliation and shame covered just with blood and spittle and dust, And he suffered there as our, my, your substitute and saviour. And time and again the Bible pictures this, doesn't it, all the way through. And we've got lots of these pictures. But Jesus came for this. And when he had fully paid the price of sin, then he was to dismiss his spirit. He cried out, it is finished. And as Vinegar said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He He wasn't killed on the cross. The the people who crucified him and put him on the cross, of course, were guilty of, well, I think in a legal way, mens rea, having a guilty mind, and actus rea, having a guilty action. So they were guilty of killing him, but they didn't kill him because he said, didn't he, no one can take my life from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. So when he had carried our sin and paid for it, he cried out, finished, and he gave himself over to death. He's the only one who chose to die. Somebody says, oh, no, 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 I know somebody else who took their own life. They chose to die. Of course, they didn't. They chose when and where and how they would die. But they would have died eventually, wouldn't they? Jesus chose to die. He tasted death, the Bible says, for everyone. So it's central to the coming of Christ. Now he's going to die and be buried, and of course he's going to rise from the dead. Which is the most important, his death or his resurrection? Well, if I may quote the wedding service, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. They're they're two sides of the one truth, aren't they? He died for us, and he rose from the dead. Secondly, the cross was central to the inner compulsion of the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul, who we, we don't We don't worship Paul, do we? But he is an example of Christian living. He's a pattern believer. We follow Christ. Sorry, we follow Paul as he followed Christ. But it's the Lord Jesus who's our saviour. But we can learn so much about Christian living by watching, listening to and learning from the life of the Apostle Paul. He'd come to Europe for the first time. His experiences, I think Europe's been like this ever since, his experiences were not particularly encouraging. He was imprisoned, having been beaten in Philippi. Now, all right, he'd seen the first ever Christian convert in Philippi, a lady called Lydia, and of course there was other others who were going to be blessed. But nevertheless, he was imprisoned, and um, and yet, well, you know the story. It led to the earthquake. Then, eventually, he had to be smuggled away by night from Thessalonica. Been there a short time, but they had to get him out of the city. He was hounded from Berea. Then in Athens, well, yes, he just went into the place, the marketplace where people were, and eventually led to that amazing opportunity at the Areopagus. But then he was mocked and derided, ridiculed there. And now he's come to the city to which he's writing this, this letter. And he comes in solitude, and God comes and encourages him and says, look, there are many people here, but nevertheless, he was alone. Paul's background and 
training, etc., were immense as far as his intellectual and academic ability. He, he, was, he was incredibly eloquent and powerful as a, as a man. He may not have looked much, but nevertheless, this real born leader. But he says, doesn't he, in verse 2, I, I have no sense of dependence upon these things. It's not that I've had great education and great learning and now I can in an eloquent way persuade men and women no 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 my confidence my sufficiency is in the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ alone and he speaks about the cross and he says and, and the reaction well the Jews they just think this is horrible to be crucified how can you boast about a man who dies a criminal's death are you saying this is this is what it's all bound up in Give us a sign. Show something wonderful. And, and the Greeks, well, he tells us about them as well. <laughs> don't, don't tell me about your God who died. This is hardly wise, is it? It's, it and then you talk, you babble on, really, about the resurrection. No, no, no. Give us some wisdom. It's not so much miracles and signs. We want some wisdom. And when we get that sort of cry coming to us, and perhaps it's not as unsophisticated as it was for... The cries coming to the Apostle Paul. The temptation is to make the pulpit, if I can phrase it like that, whether it's on a Sunday or whether it's in the open air or wherever it is, to make it into a sort of Sunday supplement of a newspaper. Just sort of dainty and pleasant and inconsequential. But no, wherever we are, in all our conversations, surely we can learn from the Apostle Paul himself and find that he made much of the cross. He spoke about the cross. The wise, the expert, the, the, the scribe, the interpreter and writer, the disputer, the philosopher, the debater. Actually, none of them knew God by themselves. If, if I may, it's, it's almost a silly little illustration, but David Attenborough does nothing for me. In the sense that I, I just can't believe anything about him. Because I think, if you have seen all the things that you're showing to us on television, and you've come to the, the, the rational, quote-unquote, conclusion that there is no God. If your thinking is so pathetic that you see all this and think, oh, there's no creator, why should I believe you're thinking on any issue at all? Now, that's how I reason. Maybe I'm getting something wrong. But, you know, these people, they may appear to be very wise as far as the media is concerned, and the sort of... The establishment is concerned. But actually what really matters is, do they know God? And there'll be a wisdom about the humblest person who's had the poorest education, or the youngest child who has a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, that these people know nothing about. And our power does not depend upon our eloquence. Paul said he came to these Corinthians with weakness and fear and much Trembling. Was that just inward or was it physical? Did, did they actually see it? His whole dependence was on the Lord. I don't know that we would have chosen him to be a, a speaker at a conference or a big church, etc. Because he didn't, he didn't rely on the things that naturally wow us. He said, no, 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 I'm all about Christ and him crucified. 
the time, I don't know whether they still do it, but the Times used to have an annual competition of uh, the preacher of the year. And I thought, how could an evangelical ever even enter that? Because it just so goes against the spirit of what the Apostle Paul is saying. But nevertheless, I had a friend who did, so we'll leave that. <laughs> so, uh, he didn't win, but he was chosen to be on the selection, the, the, the panel next time, assessing them all. But there we are. Now, now, now don't misunderstand, Paul was not being deliberately foolish or unpersuasive. No, he wasn't saying, look, we, we cast aside all those things. It's the idea of, I am not willing to rely on these. I'm not, I'm not resting. I'm not, I'm not having my confidence in these human helps. I'm looking to God. And he proclaimed the same message day after day, night after night, in situation after situation, in different cities. It was the same. You go through the book of Acts, you'll see there's a, a a repetitious nature about his messages because he's seeking to get across certain truths. They'd made such a deep impression on him. He knew that he wanted to get these things across to others. He was called to preach the gospel. He was called to preach the gospel with simplicity. And he was called to preach the gospel even if he knew that the people would resist. Nevertheless, he proclaimed that message. I love Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And what I see in that is that Paul is saying the gospel is not just a, de- a philosophy to be discussed and debated, an idea to, 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 to mull over together. No, no, no. It is a power to be unleashed. We speak about Jesus and him crucified and there is a power there. Because God delights to honour his son and the message which honours his son. Interestingly, in doing this, and I'm sure many of us can relate to this, he deliberately, and I'm not against those who are you know, ministers of churches, etc., but nevertheless, for Paul, who was very much an evangelist at heart, he left aside some of the sort of debates about church government and baptism, etc., to others so that he might prioritise the proclamation of the cross. Now we need people who will, you know, work out issues to do with what happens in somebody who's getting a divorce in our church. What do we do about somebody who's being baptised or somebody who's not? We need people like that. But nevertheless, there was a focusing, a priority. He was about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as you go through his epistles, I think it's fascinating. You know, if you look at Paul's epistles, it's almost as if Jesus came to do just three days' work. Die, be buried, and rise. There's very little mention of the incarnation, of the miracles of the Lord Jesus, of the parables of the Lord Jesus. Very little mention, perhaps a hint, in Hebrews, if Paul wrote Hebrews uh, of Gethsemane, but it's only a hint. It's all about Jesus dying. Being buried and rising from the dead. And as he proclaimed that, there was a power. I live very, very, very close to Leeds Bradford Airport. Um, in fact, if you fly in, and it's a windy day, the left wing scrapes the top of our house almost, anyway. Um, if ever you need to come to Leeds Bradford Airport, we've got a big drive, you're very welcome to park your car in our drive and we'll nip you round. And um, it's got quite a long runway, and the reason is, for a short period of time, only about four or five years, Concord came to Leeds Bradford Airport. It, it took off at Heathrow, it used to go up the North Sea, it had to go almost to Scotland to get up enough speed to break the, the, uh, the, the speed of sound and then it dropped down and come back to Leeds Bradford Airport. But I remember on two or three occasions 
we would go and be at the end of the runway when Concord was coming in. Oh, it was amazing. You, you could feel the throb of the power of the engines on your heart. And all the burglar alarms on our estate were all set off. Just because the roar, there was a power there. And it was a great sense, a great feeling to, to be under that. Now, Paul felt the power of the cross. So I beg of us to be people who, like the Apostle Paul, speak to all about Jesus and him crucified. This was the message he was seeking to get out to everybody and he refused to beat around the bush but daily we read that he ceased not to preach and teach Jesus Christ. But then thirdly, it's central to the commission of the church. We we know going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, that's Mark's gospel. Matthew, of course, go and preach, but then teach people to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And and John focuses very, very much on the fact that uh, the risen Jesus will be with us, my my, my, my joy, my peace, etc. But Luke especially focuses on four things. He tells us, actually, if we're going to go and preach the gospel to our neighbours, that's Jerusalem, and the nations, all nations, what we should be proclaiming. And the four things. First, the sufferings of Jesus, then his resurrection, then repentance and forgiveness of sins. This is what we're all about. Now, don't misunderstand. I have very strong beliefs about all sorts of things. I'm horrified that our nation aborts unborn babies. Over six million of them since David Steele brought in that murderous act in 1967. Do you know there are more laws protecting eggs in birds' nests than there are protecting unborn babies. The least safe place to be in the UK is in a mother's womb. Now this is horrendous when you think about it. But I am not here to be one of the world's protesters, but to be one of the world's proclaimers. I'm here to speak about Christ and him crucified. I think you can see I feel strongly about abortion. But actually, that is not my message. I I am not, if you want, an old Testament prophet denouncing the sins of the nations. I am a New Testament evangelist proclaiming Christ and him crucified. I... I feel saddened that time and again the church and Christians have become distracted and drifted away from the message of the cross. I think we know, and again, as I said, we'll talk more about this on Wednesday, truth has been deposed and tolerance has been enthroned, but it's a tolerance to all things except Bible truth. There is a sort of, um, I don't know, a, a deference to the idea of tolerance, but we, we, we just do not want to hear this message of Jesus. And so, what has happened? Well, we talk about being good or trying our best. We want homes for the homeless, rightly so, and porridge for the poor. We want to save the whale. We want to stop the transportation of live animals. But actually, this isn't what we're about, is it? 
I was speaking yesterday evening um, to a lovely gathering of Christians and I'd been asked to speak about trying to stir them up in evangelism and so I, I did and somebody came up to me at the end and said, um, oh I'm involved in street pastors and I said, oh great, do you, do you have opportunity to talk to the people about the Lord Jesus? No, 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 we're not allowed to. And I said, well who said you're not allowed to? This is our Father's world. We are under marching orders, aren't we? To go and make known to every creature the gospel. Who said you can't do that? There is no higher authority anywhere than the Lord. And he's commissioned us to go and proclaim this message. And the way we'll change society, if I understand things correctly, is not just by lobbying Parliament. I'm not against the Christian Institute, Christian Concern. I think, praise God for them. But actually, it's not going to happen in the high courts. It's going to happen in the hearts of men and women when they understand that Jesus loved them. He died for them. He can forgive them. He can change them. When they trust him, there will be transformation. How many times have we seen this? The message of the cross is the message that we're to get out so that people understand that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We mustn't turn uh, the pulpit, as it were, into a professor's chair. We're not there to give lectures and um, uh, sort of polite uh, remonstrations about all that's going on. No, no, no. We're there to proclaim Jesus. And whether it's in a short epilogue to young people at the end of an event, or whether it's, I don't know, to a children's gathering, or whether it's in an old folks' home, whether it's in the open air, whether it's door-to-door work, whether it's in a crowd in a church, let us make a beeline to explaining the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. How do we reach a city? How do we reach a university? How do we reach a town or a hamlet? It has to be through the message of Christ and him crucified. People don't need signs. They don't need The world's wisdom, they do need Christ and him crucified. And I beg us to be people who, whether we're reaching the equivalent of a modern day Zacchaeus, or a woman at the well, or a woman caught in the act of adultery, or a Nicodemus, at night we speak about Christ and him crucified. I remember a friend of mine was preaching in um, Speaker's Corner, and uh, a, a young guy shouted up to him, he said, you're just going round in circles, you're just talking about Jesus on the cross. And he said, yeah, we do go round in circles, and we examine the cross from different angles as we do. And I thought, yeah, good answer. Last, last, um, last little point I want to make. It is central to the calling of the Christian. I'm not one of those that believes that every Christian is an evangelist. No, there is a gifting, there is a calling, there is a ministry. But I do believe that every Christian is a witness. And some people may find it very hard to witness, but nevertheless they are witnesses. They may do it with stuttering words and feel, I never know quite how to answer these questions that people come. All right, but every Christian is to be a witness, but we are here. Because God has set us aside to be people who are making the proclamation of the gospel the priority. Now, in our lives, let us seize every scrap of legitimate happiness. I'm not against that. But in the end, let's remember that life here for us is not a picnic. We are involved in a huge battle. One that's bigger than I think we really understand. I was reading Job earlier this year and the idea of God calling Satan with other, it seems though, evil spirits and demons to appear before him in the heavens. And you think, oh wow, there are are issues here that are beyond my understanding. 
But I think we do know that every day there are people whose hearts are breaking. I think we do know that every day there are people lying in hospital wards or hospices who are on the brink of eternity without Christ and without hope. I think we know that there are numerous parents who are struggling to look after severely disabled, handicapped children, teenagers sometimes, their children who are adults. We know that people often are struggling just to keep, as it were, body and soul together because life just seems so tough. But we have a saviour and he's able to meet every deep down need. He has died for sin. He's risen from the dead. He can meet us in the tragedies as well as the joys of life. The fact that he died carrying on himself the sin of the world means that sin must be very serious in God's sight. It means as well that God's love must be very, very great if he was the darling of heaven came into our world to go to a cross and suffer like that. It must mean that our relationship with him is crucial in his thinking, if I can put it in that human way. And it does mean that everybody should know. I beg us to be people who, who speak about Jesus day by day to unconverted people. And we talk about him going to a cross because he loved us and dying and rising from the dead. And we do it with compassion and with a winsome tone and real love in our hearts. I've never been in Buckingham Palace or appeared before Her Majesty the Queen. All my invitations to do that got lost in the post, I think. But whether we were in a palace or a peasant's cottage somewhere, at the school gate, in the marketplace going door to door, in a university debating theatre, on a beach, wherever it is. Let's speak of the Lord Jesus. So that Sunday afternoon, I just said, Lord, please, could I just have some real, (laughs) the way I was talking to the Lord, humdinger conversations, really, really good conversations. I've had these little ones, sentences here and there for so long, but a real good one. Well, I got on the ferry and I had my evening meal. It's 14 hours across to, from Rotterdam to Hull. And um, I always go to the Moonlight Lounge. It's the top lounge. And there's usually a pianist in the background. And I was, I was working away. And um, the singer, oh, he was playing the piano. But he was awful. It was dreadful. So I'm, I'm going to move. So I went as far away from the singer and the pianist as I could into a little cubbyhole. But there's a couple near me. And I was doing some work typing on the computer. And... Um, there were a couple there, typical Yorkshire folk, one just turned and said, are you working? <laughs> well, it was about 11 o'clock at night, and I said, well, actually, I am. Why don't you just come over here and have a drink with us, he said. <laughs> I said, oh, no, no, what, what are you doing, he said. I said, well, actually, I'm writing a book about Christmas for next Christmas. Do you think anybody will publish it? I said, oh, I think they will, yeah. <laughs> Do you know I spent two and a half hours with them? It was, it was amazing. And me, a teetotaler, I had a half pint of beer just to get along. Oh, it is disgusting stuff, isn't it? <laughs> but they insisted, and you sort of think, oh, I wish there was a, a pot plant I could just water there. <laughs> anyway, two and a half hours, and I sent them some books. And, uh, and then the next day, I was, I was with my wife, Dot, and... Um, 
we were passing Waitrose. Now, we don't normally shop in Waitrose, but I have to say I do have a Waitrose card, which means, for those of you who are discerning or from Yorkshire, you can get a free coffee. Now, to be honest, I didn't really fancy a coffee, and I wasn't thirsty, but the word free really... (laughs) You've got to be from Yorkshire to understand this. It really, really appealed to me. So we went in for a coffee, you see, and um, you have to get a little slip, and then you get your cup, and you go and get your free coffee. And the, the guy who was serving me was called Tom. So I said, oh, are you a, a twin? And he said, no, why? I said, well, actually, Thomas means twin. I don't know whether you've ever heard of doubting Thomas in the Bible, but he has a lot of twins. He said, well, I've heard of peeping Toms. So I said, no. <laughs> I said, this is a bit different. <laughs> So I told the story of Doubting Thomas, and I said, you need to read it. It's in John's Gospel. And he said, I- I'd like to, I'm interested in history, he said. Anyway, I gave him something, but I didn't have a John's Gospel. I couldn't get him out of my mind. The next day, I went for another coffee. <laughs> and uh, David, you'll be very pleased to know I used one of the bridge builders, John's Gospels, and I just prayed as I went back into Waitrose. I went at the same time, Lord, I'd just like to see Tom again if I could. I walked in, and he was the first person there. And I went to, oh, well, actually, he said, oh, nice to see you again. I said, look, you know, I mentioned John's Gospel. I gave it, we had a lovely conversation. I would beg us to be people who are going out with a deliberate, intentional view of each day that today I want to go and proclaim to unconverted people that Jesus died and was buried and rose from the dead. I want to make much of the Lord Jesus. I want to say to them, Christ loved you and died for you, that he bore your sin in his own body on the tree. And do you know, when we speak about Jesus, there is amazing drawing power. Often in churches, in vestries, they'll pray, Lord, help the preacher to lift up the Lord Jesus. Well, we know what they mean. It's a nice thought. But actually, when the Lord used that phrase in John's Gospel, it speaks of the fact that he would be lifted up on a cross to die. Let's point to the time when he was lifted up. Let's make it our life's work to proclaim, to herald, to preach Christ and him crucified. And do you know... There is, well, you do know, I don't know why I say I do know. You do know what joy there is, isn't there? At the end of the day, you look back and think, oh, wow, I was able to tell that person about Jesus. And it sort of, to me, it redeems the day. It makes a day worthwhile, even if other things have gone wrong and it all seems to have been wasted. Uh Uh-uh, it's redeemed. Let's make much of Jesus. Well, I think, oh, I've got about a minute left, have I? Oh, I have. I'll just tell you one more. This, some of you have heard this story. It's the funniest thing that happened to me all last year. And it's, oh, every time I've, I've gone over and over and over to get in my car, and every time it makes me laugh out loud. I don't know whether you ever give out tracks. Do you, do you just go onto a street and give out tracks? And um, I use them as much as I can as the key to open the door of conversation. So I use them to get into conversation. Or if I find myself just chatting with somebody about the Lord and I haven't used the tract, I use them as the key to close the door of conversation. So I like to give them a little tract at the end. Well, in, in September, I went, as I usually do, to Nidderdale um, Agricultural Show. And it's the last of the Yorkshire shows in, in Yorkshire. 
and uh, uh, for each year. And I went there and I was giving out tracks. I started by giving out the Rugby World um, Cup tract, which I'd done. But these yokels, these country folk from the Yorkshire Dales were not interested in rugby. And I, I, I gave up when one guy said to me, my father used to say to me, if thou's got energy to play rugby, I can find a job round house for thee to do. So, <laughs> so I thought, all right, no more. So I decided then to start giving out. I have to say, they do speak in these and thous in many parts of Yorkshire. So I started then giving out a tract you'll see on there called A Little Bit of Heaven on Earth in Yorkshire. <laughs> so funny. Uh, I gave this tract to a, a guy and he said, Is thou a Yorkshireman? I said, Yes, I am. Was thou father a Yorkshireman? I said, He was, yes. Does thou have cheese with a Christmas cake? I said, I do always. Thou's a Yorkshireman, then he said. <laughs> and then he just added, I always say, Cake without cheese is like a kiss without a squeeze. <laughs> Christian leaflets. <laughs> anyway, on that note, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we do thank you for a glorious gospel that we've got. And Lord, may we not be intimidated by the pressures to sort of be sidetracked or even silenced. We've already thought about encouragement in discouraging times. Lord, may we have Christ and cross-centred conversations in very secular times. Day by day, Lord, lead us to faithful, winsome proclamation of the Lord Jesus, whom we love because he first loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, we commit the rest of this day and our loved ones, wherever they are at this moment, to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.